Hey there, listeners and lurkers. This is Alan Johnston. And I'm Amy Johnston. And we're so happy that you're joining us for The Last Isle. This week, we'll be covering the 1986 remake of Invaders from Mars, directed by Toby Hooper, who also directed Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And the adaptation screenplay was written by Dan O'Bannon, who also wrote Alien and Don Jacoby. The back of the box summary of this film is a courageous young boy battles the hideous Martians who have taken over his parents and who now threaten to subjugate the entire planet. Truly unearthly creature design and makeup techniques blend with astonishing special visual effects. A breathtaking, pulse-pounding science fiction mind blower. I remember watching this movie. I think I must have caught it on TV as a kid. Um, I don't think this is something mom and dad probably ever rented for us. Or maybe dad rented it for himself or something. But um, catching it, I think, on TV. And there was one particular scene, which we'll get to, and I'll talk about it when I get there, that scared the shit out of me. <laughs> it gave me a stomach ache. And when I watched this again for the podcast, I got a stomach ache at that same part. <laughs> And I don't know if it was because I had a sense memory of this particular scene or if I'm just a wuss at this particular scene. No. <laughs> my stomach hurt so bad. Um, I remember the same scene you're referring to, but I'm not sure if it's a memory that I remember actually seeing it or I just remember you describing it so vividly. Um, and the rest of the movie, I sort of remember here and there, but I either mentally blocked it from trauma or I just don't remember it that well because I was too young. I think this might have been the very first movie that I remember scaring me as a kid, which is part of the reason I wanted to do this for the podcast. For sure. Is because I was like, I think this is the earliest, quote, horror, even though it's sci-fi. This is where it starts. Yeah, I know. So it is a sci-fi movie, but there are definite horror elements. I mean, you have the writer of Alien and you have Toby Hooper. You know, I mean. You have the makings of a really great movie because you have... uh, the excellent writers you just uh, mentioned, which I've already forgotten because I have no memory. <laughs> um, and you have the legendary Stan Winston working on makeup effects. So, and uh, I think it's important, and we'll talk a bit more about this later. You said it has the makings. Yeah, that was an in, that was an intentional phrase. I used. the makings of a great movie. It's so, so so much potential. <laughs> Let's keep that phrase in mind while we go ahead. Caution. Spoilers ahead. The film opens on son David, played by Hunter Carson, and dad George, played by Timothy Bottoms, doing a little stargazing in the yard and waiting for a meteor shower. They see a really bright meteor and get very excited, to the point where David exclaims, Holy shit! And his dad didn't even correct him. David's like 10 or 11, I think. David's mom, Ellen, played by Lorraine Newman, comes outside to tell David it's time for bed because he has school tomorrow. And David mentions that she has school, too. So I'm guessing she's probably a teacher or something. And she wrangles everyone inside. Inside David's room, we see that he's obviously fascinated with space as his room's covered in toy robots, a telescope, star charts. And he even mentions that he wants to be an astronaut when he grows up. As George stays behind to tuck David in, David mentions that the base commander had come to visit his school, which leads us to assume that they're near some sort of military base. We hear a rumble, and David asks his dad if he heard it. George asks what, and David says, Thunder, Dad, you must be getting pretty old. 
Instead of calling him a little smartass, like I probably would have, he calls him a wise guy and sends him into bed. George suddenly remembers to give David a penny for his coin collection. David tells his dad that he loves him and then cradles a bag of pennies <laughs> before going to sleep. I probably would have picked a teddy bear, but that's maybe but just pennies. Me. Pennies are very, very cuddly. A sock full of nickels. <laughs> In the next scene, we see there's a heavy storm outside. David wakes up as he hears a clap of thunder. He gets to, he gets up to look out the window, and we see the telltale lights of a UFO coming from what looks like an alien ship made out of a giant Ferrero Rocher candy. It lands behind a hill outside the gardener's house. David screams and runs to his parents' room to let them know he saw a UFO. The gardeners stumble out of bed to go look out of David's window and see what he sees. They do the typical adult thing, trying to convince David it was probably lightning or a plane or a meteor. David insists he knows what he saw, and George says that he'll go check on it in the morning once it's light out, and he puts David back to bed. So this is an interesting scene to me because I think it, it is quintessential 80s parents just don't understand kids. Yes. Um, I feel like we kind of grew up on that of like, hey, man, parents just don't believe their children. And I, there, there are PSAs around this time where it's like, don't forget to hug your kid. Like, uh, parents are just like, you're on my nerves and I've worked all day at the mill and like, <laughs> get your ass to bed, kid. Um, so this is a, this is a heartwarming moment of them trying to tell him that he's crazy. <laughs> well, and, and to be fair, I don't think they're bad parents. I mean, they're obviously very attentive. They're interested in what he's interested in. Also, I don't think I mentioned it, but, um, David's dad works for NASA, yeah, which I think super secret NASA shit. That you yeah, it doesn't really say what he does at NASA, but like there, you see the badge on his on his sweater. I do some vague NASA shit, <laughs> vague NASA stuff. Um, so you know, obviously that's probably where David's interests come from is sure. because dad's a, dad's a space guy. Yeah. Um, so you know when David's telling them, "Hey, mom, dad, like I saw this UFO outside," they aren't like "You're fucking nuts! Get back, get back to sleepy little shit." They, they're they like, let's go see what he's talking about. Maybe that's why I wanted them to be, because I hate this kid. <laughs> oh, no. I'm saying, maybe it's an unpopular opinion. But you watch it. You watch it, listeners at home. You watch the movie. You tell me that you don't hate this child. I don't. We're not rooting for this. I am not rooting for this kid. I don't hate the kid. Okay, well. I question his motivations at some <laughs> points, which I will also cover in just. My oh. hatred will become clear. <laughs> All right. Well, this is going to be fun. <laughs> the next morning, we see Ellen in the kitchen making notes on her hands as she prepares for, I guess, teaching. Because never specifically says she's a teacher, but either that or she's about to cheat on a DMV driver's exam. I don't know. <laughs> um, David walks in and catches her and laughs and tells her not to get caught. David and Ellen share a giggle, and we see George walk in, staring straight ahead in his bathrobe with only one slipper on. So I uh, described this as a apparently bad quaalude hangover. So um, <laughs> Right. Okay. So David and Ellen tell something's a little off and Ellen asks George if he wants coffee and he goes, uh, yeah, like really <laughs> high drunk. Like, I don't know. And he continues to walk stiffly into the room. David is super sus at this point and he asks George what happened to his other slipper. George goes, I lost it, and then sits down at the table. He's microdosing. <laughs> I guess so. 
Alan asks what's wrong and he doesn't wait for an answer. David asks his dad if he's sure there was nothing over the hill. George, who's acting like he's on Molly, yeah, because he's <laughs> at this point, hold on, acts like he's on Molly, beckons David over and says no, it must have been a bad dream, and he boops David on the nose and forehead in like this super creepy way, like, I just want to touch your face. It's so weird. So that's why I, yeah, he's rolling on something. Ah, how are you here? <laughs> David leans over and he spies an ugly, bruised wound on the back of George's neck and he recoils. He asks George what happened to his neck and George tells him forcefully to sit down. David sits at the table and Ellen hands them both breakfast and then heads off to work. George pours himself some coffee, looks at a tin of what I think are sweetener tablets. So like, like equal or something like that. Um, but they're in tablet form. He pours about seven eighths of the tin into the cup and then he guzzles the whole thing as if it's not completely boiling hot coffee with a shitload of sweetener in it. Mm-hmm. The coffee runs down his chest and then he crunches yeah, this is all the sweetener tablets. This grossed me out so much. This is not an acceptable way to behave as a human. <laughs> Your manners are atrocious, this sir. This is completely normal behavior. Could you please leave this Luby's? Could you please leave this Denny's? Like, you're not allowed here. It's this Florida man behavior right here. <laughs> he tells David, let me walk you to the bus stop. As they walk outside, George tells David that he was right. There is something behind the hill. He tells David he wants to show him what it is and reaches out for him. David's like, uh, no fucking thanks. And he books it away from the house to get on the approaching school bus. George is left standing there waving at the bus as it goes by like he's a 1950s animatronic. <laughs> he's so stiff and so weird and some shit has gone down <laughs> and we don't know what it is yet. We next see David in class with the teacher, Mrs. McKelch. Played by Nurse Ratchet herself, Louise Fletcher, reminding the students that it's Frog Week in class and how she had collected all the specimens for dissection herself from around Copper Hill. As she goes to a student's desk to assist her with a question, some shitty boys at the side of the class decide to throw a frog at another student. It lands on David's desk and he cuts himself with a dissection scalpel as he throws the frog back at them. Mrs. McKelch grabs David by the wrist and lambasts him for misbehaving while the other students point and laugh at him. Heather, who is the class know-it-all, played by Virginia Keene, and this girl is the perfect, like, you. everybody knew this kid in their class that was, like, teacher's pet, sucka, smarter than everyone, whatever. So Heather uh, tells Mrs. McKelch that David's bleeding. Rather than being sympathetic, she tells Heather to watch the class while she takes David to the nurse and says that she hopes he needs a tetanus shot. <laughs> I'm like, fucking great. Like, great sympathy for your kids. Kid like, straight she- up gets, like, Jimmy Fallon on the finger and just, like, <laughs> fully deglove, like, blood everywhere. Okay, She's like, not- I hope you get tetanus, you little fucker. That's like- hyperbole. It's not that graphic. But, like, it feels like it feels like a pretty serious thing to be like, oh, you're such a troublemaker. And now She's- you're bleeding? Good. But I don't trust her. She's Nurse Ragged. Oh. There's some shit. And she's just... Just wait. She's evil already. Mrs. McCouch walks David to the nurse's office and tells the nurse that David will probably need a tetanus shot because he cut himself. The nurse, Miss Linda Magnuson, played by Karen Black, who we love. Mm-hmm. She is Mother Firefly, mm-hmm. and she is fantastic. Mm-hmm. 
Um, she's also, fun fact, the real-life mother of David Gardner. Oh. Yeah. Um, the nurse Linda Magnuson thanks Mrs. McClutch, and she screams at her, It's McCalt! Like, this lady <laughs> has no chill. Um, and she tells David, the nurse tells David he's probably going to live, and Mrs. McCalch just storms out of the room all totally cranky and whatever. Yeah. All nurse ratchety and... All nurse ratchety. That's right. We move to a shot of the school bus dropping David off at home after school. He sees that George's car's in the driveway and that the front door is standing wide open. He goes in and he looks around really suspiciously. As he goes in, the door slams on its own behind him. He calls out for his dad and he heads into the living room where the TV is on and shows nothing but static. David changes the channel to a movie, which, fun fact, the movie that it's showing at this point is called Life Force, and it's the movie that Toby Hooper directed. Right. Which was a complete and total flop. It was an absolute flop. And, yeah, it was not, I have not seen it. Um, he didn't really come back from that. Or this, as it turns out. Yeah, I, no, I have... I have feelings about Toby Hooper. I love him. I love him. I love Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I love Toby Hooper. But, like, it didn't... Well, I mean, he directed Poltergeist. Mm -hmm. And there's, like, a whole Poltergeist saga. If we ever cover Poltergeist, which I kind of hope we do, there's, like, so much there in terms of, like, Spielberg versus Hooper. Anyway, it's... So, but yes, you're right. He didn't really recover from this. So the TV's showing nothing but static. David changes the channel to a movie, but we see a shadow ominously lurking behind him. Out of nowhere, a robotic voice says, David Gardner, feed me. And we see that David's mom, Ellen, has come in with a remote control robot toy to scare the crap out of her son. Mm -hmm. This is Lorraine Newman doing her SNL Coonhead's voice. Yes, for sure. Yeah. You know, we love love an SNL cast member. I mean... David asks where George is, and Ellen says she doesn't know, and maybe he had gotten a ride to the base with some of the guys. David says that he thinks something wrong, and his dad is acting weirded out, and he and Ellen just tells him not to worry. The scene fades to a shot of a clock showing it's 8 p.m., and Ellen and David are sitting on the stairs. Ellen confesses that now she's starting to get worried, and she picks up the phone to make a call. We see a police cruiser pull up to the house, and the police chief and Officer Kenny come inside. Now, the police chief here is played by a guy named Jim Hunt, and this Jim Hunt played David in the 1953 Invaders from Mars. So I thought this was a really cute way. Which I watched a bit of the original in preparation for this, and he was a cute little boy. Very, he's a he's a he cute a, grown man too. Has a very nineteen fifties freckled little kid, look. like uh, like Augie, Dennis, sir. Dennis the Menace, yeah. Sort of vibe, yeah. Well, he's a very cute grown man, too. Ellen says that she doesn't know where George is, and David says that maybe he's gone up to Copper Hill. Ellen says that David is concerned that he had seen a plane crash up there the night before, and David stresses that no, he saw a UFO. His mom sharply tells him to stop it, and the police tell them that they'll go have a look up the hill. As they walk to check it out, the chief says, I haven't been up here since I was a kid, which is a clear reference to him being in the original movie. I thought that was really cute. As David and Ellen wait for the police to come back, a bird calls loudly and a twig snaps and we see George walk out of a wooded area behind the house with a man named Ed. George introduces them in a super robotic manner and we see that Ed's also acting weirded out, as Mm -hmm. David says. Body snatched. Yeah. (laughs) 
Alan snaps at George to find out where he had been, and Ed's like, uh, yeah, later, I gotta go pick up my wife and kid. But he says it with no inflection yeah. in his voice at all, and he slowly walks away. Ellen continues asking George what had happened to him and where had Ed come from. And David says that the man is Heather's dad. Heather's the little know-it-all girl from the class. George says that Ed works for the phone company and that they had to have a special meeting about a phone hookup at the base, but that he's home now. <laughs> the police come back down the hill and it's clear that something happened as they are both also now expressionless and cold. They say that David has quite the imagination, and George says, everything is fine now, with a robotic nod. The cops nod back at him in the same way, and they go to leave, with David taking notice of the chief briefly touching the back of his neck as he walks away. George grabs David's arm kind of forcefully and leads him back into the house. In the next scene, the family's finishing up dinner when George says that it sure is beautiful behind the hill and that maybe Ellen would want to take a walk up there with him after she does the dishes. Dude. No. Dude. Call the police. You're free. Well, she already did that. It didn't work. You're possessed or infected or taken over or whatever and like you're still freaking concerned about your wife doing the dishes like go fuck yourself <laughs> i'm so sorry <laughs> ellen's like uh excuse me who the fuck's doing the dishes <laughs> and she tells george he's acting really strange i would say misogynistic but strange words we cut to a scene of david awake in bed while his father sneaks in slowly raising his arms as if he's about to attack david instead he grabs david's fishbowl full of pennies on the nightstand and he walks out david sits up looks at the bag of pennies he still has his little snuggle buddy and looks out the window watching his mother and father take a walk up behind copper hill he calls after his mom but she disappears along with george so this is uh, another interesting thing because you mentioned the fishbowl full of pennies did you have a large container of pennies as a kid I mean, like, I probably had a piggy bank, but, like, David is kind of obsessed with, like, he's a coin collector or whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, but, no, I mean, like, I I don't. I had a collection of piggy, uh, pen, piggies. Aw, <laughs> <laughs> and they were so cute piggies. <laughs> I had a collection of pennies. Um, a big, like, a, a big collection. Actually, I had a big, one of those oversized plastic crayons, and it was full mm -hmm. of coins. Mm -hmm. um, so, I do remember... Sort of save, you know, parents sometimes will send you somewhere, like, let you keep the change if they come back from the store or whatever. And the collection of, of coins. I'm saying this because I feel like this is uh, something that now only older people know about. Because oh, people don't yeah. collect, really collect change anymore. That's not No, a thing. like, kids get debit cards at six now. Like, I don't know. I don't. I, I mean, me personally, I don't know the last time I used cash. Like, I me, don't. Me so, either. And I grew up using cash. We're in that weird generation. We're, we're the... Stopover generation. We're in that weird... We're zennials. Yeah. Anyway. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> From my youth. Um, the next morning, we see Ellen cooking absentmindedly in the kitchen, stopping just long enough to dab a napkin to the back of her neck while David watches silently. She brings a huge plate of burnt bacon to the table for breakfast, asking David if he's hungry and if he feels all right. George walks in and begins, begins to eat some of the bacon, Ellen telling him that she doesn't think David feels well. She says that they should all go on a picnic behind Copper Hill. David tells Ellen that she has classes, and she says that they can go this afternoon. 
David asked if this is some kind of joke as we watch Ellen manhandle some raw hamburger beet, pour a heart-stopping amount of salt, or maybe sugar, but I think salt, <laughs> onto it, rip off a chunk of raw meat, and then shove it in her mouth to eat it. <sighs> Ellen says she'll make hamburgers for the picnic, which, like, <laughs> no thank you. And David's like, uh, I don't want to go. And he gets up to leave for school. George asks David to give his mom a hug, and Ellen rushes to catch David before he goes out the door. She gives him a stiff, unfeeling hug while David locks eyes with his dad. David rushes out the door to catch the bus, and the two parents stand there being weird as fuck in the kitchen, with George just saying the word, later. So this is just a crime against humanity, this amount of burnt bacon. It's a, oh, well, yeah. It's also a crime against hamburger meat. It's a, it's a, yeah, it's a crime against pigs and cows everywhere. <laughs> it is unacceptable, the amount of burnt this bacon is. Yeah, it's and, like... And... What the fuck is with the hamburger meat? Dude, man? I don't I don't know. Like also, and, and it never comes up again. Like it never you see that okay, so like George ate, you know, the weird sweetener coffee or whatever earlier. You see that, you know, she pours all this salt onto hamburger meat. Um but like it, it never I mean it kind of comes up again a little bit with a different character, but they don't really cover like, oh, yeah, no, man, aliens just eat weird shit because they need it or whatever. It's yeah. just it's All, unsettling. It's which very works. unsettling. Also, I will tell you, and this is this will come up again because I have this weird obsession with with stage food and stage mm. items, things mm-hmm. that are supposed to look like body parts or whatever. I looked to see what she ate as hamburger meat. Um, and then later, there's another thing that's eaten, and I looked that up, and I couldn't find the oh, like source if they for had substitute. Yeah, I love that what too. these things are made of. But the search continues, and if I find out information, I will, I will uh, come back to it. I'm not giving up the ghost on this one. I, I have no doubt that she went super method and just dated raw cow, but <laughs> who knows. In the next scene, David is sitting alone on a jungle gym at school when his absolute peach of a friend comes over and smacks him the metal bars with a bat, scaring the shit out of David. The friend says, you were shitting me about the spaceship stuff, right? Everyone's saying, you're really spaced, which like, did you ever call your kid, your friend spaced? I did not. Uh, no, it's stupid. Um, <laughs> David says, <laughs> it is, it's stupid. It's dumb and I hate it. <laughs> David goes, ugh, great. And he doesn't want to play with this friend, and so the, his friend walks off. This friend has no name, and it, so that's why he's just his friend. David, back inside the school, silently watches as Mrs. McKelch and the police chief discuss in the hallway how they're going to go tonight and that everything will be destroyed at midnight. Mrs. McKelch says George Gardner has been designated. We don't really know designated for what. He's just designated. And then she walks into her classroom. David sneaks behind her, watching her write on the board that the class is going to go on a sudden field trip, which is not good. She walks into a back room behind her class, and David slowly follows her. He peers around the corner to see Mrs. McKelch with her back to David, a bandage on the back of her neck. She turns around, and we see her gobbling down a preserved frog, greenish-black goo dripping down her chin. (laughs) This scared my ass as a kid that like i remember when i first like started looking up you know you go through a phase kind of once you really get into what google is where you're like i remember this thing as a kid i wonder if google can tell me what it is and so i remember googling 
like 1980s movie Lady Eats Frog because that's the part that was like burned into my brain. Found this and never forgot the name of it again. But like, oh my god! How do you feel now that you've addressed your childhood trauma? <laughs> I obviously still have thoughts about it. <laughs> like, oh, and and it's still gross. Like, I mean, I've definitely seen way more horrific gore. It's a lot. That thing stuff. is wiggly. It but, is, yeah. Well, I mean, part of it is because I think she's like kind of wiggling her head yeah. there to make it wiggle. But yeah. like, oh my god, it's so unsettling. Not my. Not she's my a class act, though, man. She sells that frog eating like start to finish. She absolutely does. Yeah. Suddenly, Heather the Know It All comes in and asks David what's what he's doing there. He pushes her aside quickly and runs off down the hall like a wacky, waving, inflatable arm flailing tube man <laughs> as Mrs. McKelch chases him. This kid can't run at all. Like, if you remember the scene in Home Alone where Macaulay Culkin <laughs> is like, ah, ah, yeah. like with his arms waving, this kid just runs like that. Yeah. Just I don't general. know if this was a choice of his own. I don't know if Toby, to- I don't know if Toby Hooper was like, nah, dude, needs more waving. <laughs> Like more flaily. <laughs> yeah, could you do it again, but more flaily? Like, I don't know. But anyway, and we see it a lot. Like, this is not the first time we see this. Mm. And it's definitely not the last. No, unfortunately, no. So he runs off down the hall and Mrs. McKelch chases him. He runs right into the arms of Nurse Linda, who asks him what's wrong. Mrs. McKelch catches up and says that David had pushed a little girl over and that he's a little snoop. And she snatches his arm forcefully. Linda asks to please let her talk to him instead and sends David inside her office. Mrs. McKelch says, you're pushing it, sister. I'll be back for him in five minutes. Five minutes. (laughs) And she stalks off down the hall. Mm -hmm. Linda goes into her office asking David what's wrong, and he says that she wouldn't understand. She insists that she will understand and that nothing David tells her will leave that room. David asks to see the back of her neck, and she obliges. The scene fades into a point seemingly after David has told her the whole story because Linda says that's some kind of story and sums up what we can assume David just told her about spaceships and people being taken over by aliens. She tells David to stay right there and leaves the room to go talk to Mrs. McKelch, who seems to be lurking just around the corner waiting. Mm -hmm. Linda asks about Mrs. McKelch's neck and while she won't let Linda see it, she says, oh, it's just a boil. Linda says she can help take care of that if Mrs. McKelch will just let her see it, but Mrs. McKelch violently resists and says she just wants the boy. Linda is not having that and won't let her buy. Mrs. McKelch says, you have a lot of nerve, sister, and storms off. She loves calling everybody sister. And calling everybody sister. Also, you know something's wrong with this, uh, wrong with this person because who admits that they have a boil on the back of their neck? You hide that shit in shame. You don't. You don't just be like it's a boil. You're well, gonna be like it's something. It's a it's snake bite or so whatever. You don't <laughs> say it's a boil. Like that's not something that you admit to. Linda goes back into her office with David, and all of a sudden goes into spy movie mode. She gives David a key to her house, sending him out of the window and telling him her address. Which, like, okay, I mean. You suddenly believe all that? I mean, I don't know. I don't, I don't. It's just a very weird behavior for a school nurse at this point. Right. It's not weird behavior for his mom, which Karen Black is Hunter Carson's mom. So like, that's fine. Yeah. But like, that's not who they're playing. No. They're playing a school nurse in a random yes. Like how, like, how do you know, how do you know him that well? And 
Like, just because there's a, like, shitty teacher at the school. Yeah. I don't know. This, Any, would, this would be on the 5 o'clock news if this happened today. Like, you don't just, like, kids go into your house. Yeah, no, this is super course. weird. Yeah. So, Linda runs into Heather after sending David off, who asks where he is. Linda says that, or Linda tells Heather that he's not feeling well, and Heather turns and walks away, with Linda noticing that there's also a bandage on the back of Heather's neck. Yeah, little kids. I knew she was. She got got. She got got. Outside the school, David's walking through the parking lot to leave the grounds, but he stops when he sees his dad's car pulling up. He notices Heather and Mrs. McKay, Mrs. McKelch, also looking for him, so he opts into an open van to avoid being seen. This van looks like Norman Bates' taxidermy workshop as it's full of cages, bones, and animal specimens. Heather and Mrs. McKelch catch up just outside the van, with Heather saying that David's still with the nurse, and Mrs. McKelch saying that David's parents will get him. Mrs. McKelch gets into the van, because naturally, of course, it's her van, because she's weird, and she starts to drive away. We get a short scene of David's parents confronting Linda and asking where David is, with Linda telling them that she had only left him for just a moment and he must have snuck out. <laughs> back in the van, David hides very poorly in the back while Mrs. McCouch drives to Copper Hill. She gets out and she climbs over a fence to walk down the hill and David hops out to trail her. He comes to an opening in the rocks, glowing with red light, and he starts to follow her down a series of tunnels. We see Mrs. McKelch walk through some membranous door, and we begin to see signs of alien-type architecture. Finally, she reaches the main room, with two meatball-looking aliens apparently really happy to see her. A big brain thing, which is credited as the supreme intelligence, descends from the ceiling. Now, this was a cool-looking creature, um, but do you remember Krang from Teenage, Mut Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? It was like the big guy with the brain in his belly. Yes. This, thing this is straight up Krang. This thing reminds yeah. me of Krang. Yeah, you're not wrong. So much. You're like, not wrong I even this. Googled like a side by side. I'm like, not nah, man, that's Krang brain. Yeah. The Supreme Intelligence ohms at Mrs. McKelch, causing the antenna in the back of her neck to emerge as if the Supreme Intelligence is communicating with whatever's inside her. David looks on horrified. Mrs. McHelch starts singing random vowels. I don't get this at all. She sings A-E-I-O-U. She says, you get me a pile and you get me whittles. You get me both or I'll have your heart and liver out, David Gardner. It is worth mentioning at this point that Louise Fletcher was nominated for a Razzie for this movie. Ah. And it makes so much sense right here. David is suddenly spotted by the being, and he runs off, running into a new meatball alien at every turn. He finally manages to find a way out and yeets himself out of the closing door into the woods. He emerges from the woods by what I think is Linda's house, and we see that the police are already there, probably to check and see if David or Linda are hiding there. A hand slowly reaches out to cover David's mouth, and it's Linda. David breathlessly tells her that he found them and Mrs. McKelch and that they tried to kill him. She asks who the heck he's talking about and he says, these huge, ugly, slimy, giant Mr. Potato Heads. He says potato, I say meatball, but whatever. <laughs> he asks Linda to follow him so he can show her and she says, you're not just a crazy child, are you? Okay, so... She's just now asking herself if he's crazy. Yeah, like she's given her... him a key to the house. Mm -hmm. She's given him 
her address. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They're on the lamb together. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she's just now questioning if the boy's yeah. crazy. She is like, she's like public enemy number one at this point. Like she's she is like kid. Nancy Grace full on. Like <laughs> I like, put this woman in jail we don't know what she wants with this kid. We don't no, know there's why. Like no, there's yeah. no motive. There's just like a random nurse stole a yeah, random there's, boy. There's like, should there would be a full on manhunt at this point in time. Um, is now an appropriate time to talk about aliens. Yeah, let's talk about those meatballs. Okay, so, I mean, this is a Stan Winston creation. And he talks about creating these aliens that he wanted he wanted to create an alien invader that didn't look like a guy in a suit. So these meatballs, he designed in a very specific way. He said he came up with the idea of putting a little person on the back of a big guy who would stand and walk backwards. So the way these are actually being uh, mechanized is that the little person is controlling like the mouth and eyes and everything and in like the, the front little, the little arms and the stuff arms in the front. and bladders in the front and then the big person and bat and uh and back is actually walking for the creature um it is an insane structure also they had to invent a new technology to be able to make things this big and this and light enough mm-hmm. so that the actors could wear them so they came up with something called the octor inject octo injector technique Mm -hmm. um and which a big five gallon bucket that had multiple uh hoses coming out of it six of them would sit around with one gallon buckets and mix up the polyfoam and then dump it into this thing cap the lid and then shoot compressed air into it which would uh allow them to inject polyfoam into multiple points all around the mold we, they got their skins out and they said that they were like good enough to patch, to cobble right. together. Yeah. Um, and that's how they created these these big meatball monsters. Yeah. And then they didn't they also say that like they didn't realize they were emitting a bunch of like noxious fumes yeah. and like that the dudes almost poisoned themselves. Yeah. Not so it it, it was uh, it was trial by error, um, I think, in, in the creating of these creatures. They're very cool looking. They are. And Stan Winston even said, you know, he's like, we were on a budget and I had two guys and you know to make this work with to make these aliens work with mm-hmm. and i didn't want it to look like you said like i don't want it to look just like a dude in a suit which the aliens from the original i have seen pictures of and it is absolutely just like a guy in a wetsuit right um but for what they did and you know considering the budget they look extremely cool yeah and it's just a great not enough screen time not enough no, screen time considering for this entire it is, considering these are the titular alien or invaders from mars yeah there are very few shots of from Mars. Yeah, yeah, like on the screen. Also, sadly and stupidly, I think Stan Winston and John Dykstra, who did the other like visual effects and stuff, he worked on Star Wars. They also got nominated for a Razzie. Right. Um, and but like, I don't, I don't get that. I get the Louise Fletcher thing. I don't get the, I don't get the Stan Winston hate on this. Another one. fun fact: in the process of working on this, they agreed to this project. While doing concept drawings and concept concept art for Alien, yeah, these so were some busy dudes. This because, was a this was a oh Aliens, right? Yeah, Alien. Alien came out. Alien, already. so they're like, oh well, we'll just tack this one on. This will be fine. <laughs> I tell you what, like reading the stories that I've read about like makeup artists and and creature effects designers and stuff. People. Holy crap, yeah. man! 
especially back in that era it was like the wild west all of practical horror effects. and oh my gosh yeah i know so much is done with cg now but anyway Linda and David uh, drive to Copper Hill, where David walks with her down behind the hill to point out the tunnel opening, and it's gone. David is insistent that the entrance was right there, and says that they now they, they have to go to the sand pit. They overlook a giant crater with nothing in it, and Linda tries to console David, telling him that they're already in trouble and maybe she should just take him home. They look towards David's house and see a couple of men in orange jumpsuits coming to check out the sand pit. They watch surreptitiously as the two men chat with David's parents and then head over the hill to go check out the crater with metal detectors. They scan the sand, commenting about how the gardeners seemed kind of weird, when all of a sudden a sinkhole opens up under them and sucks them into the ground. David and Linda run back to the car to flee, and just as they're pulling away, a horn honks and we see that they almost back right into a school bus driven by Mrs. McElch. The bus is full of David's classmates being driven to what we can assume is their assimilation. You and I talked about this off off recording um, about how quicksands was it seemed like to be a much bigger yeah, threat. Yeah, everybody in the eighties was going to die in quicksand. quicksand. I mean, like Princess Bride, quicksand. You know, just like name an eighties movie that was like every actiony. Car- every cartoon you had quicksand. We were absolutely going to die in quicksand. Yeah, every kid was const. Every kid from the eighties was constantly scared. That you were going to accidentally wander into some quicksand. So much so that we all knew that if you just stayed still in quicksand uh, and don't panic, you'll be fine. So, I mean, we all I'm, had to, you know, it's like, don't get kidnapped and uh, don't disappear. And check quicksand. your candy. Check your Halloween check candy. Your candy. Because razor there's blades. razor blades right. or cocaine in it. Yes, most likely. <laughs> because what, what addicts do are most likely to do with their drug supply is put it into kids candy well you know kids of the 80s they hang with the wrong crowd they get all hopped up on cocaine candy and then they're falling into quicksand and i've seen it a hundred times times. (laughs) (laughs) oh gosh linda pulls into a gas station nearly creaming a skateboarder on his skateboard in the middle of the road like I don't, it looks, they were so close. I was convinced this had to be CG because she is flying down the road and comes from within about a foot of this guy. It made me laugh. She pulls into the gas station to make a phone call to the state police. David stays in the car and we see the school bus pull up behind him with none of the kids left inside. As Linda starts to dial, Mrs. McKelch confronts David in the car, telling him he missed the field trip and yanking him out of the window by his neck. She pulls David towards the bus, but he wriggles away and runs down the street, yelling for Linda, who drops the phone and takes off in her car. She drives down the street and nearly hits Mrs. McKelch as she picks as Linda picks David up and they drive off. Mrs. McKelch stomps her foot in a tantrum in the middle of the street, like <laughs> curses boiled again. As David and Linda drive, she asks him if his neck is okay and what Mrs. McKelch did to him. He says he's fine, and he asks if she got the state police on the phone, but she says that all the lines were busy. Linda says there's one place they can hide while they call the FBI. We next see David and Linda going into the school with a flashlight, and David stops to grab his jacket out of his locker. In the office, she starts to call the FBI, but they note that the lines are dead. Suddenly, the police car pulls up front with the chief and Officer Kenny getting out to come check out the school. David pulls the whole, I know a place, and they sneak out of the nurse's office, away from the cops, and go to a boiler room. As they descend the stairs, Linda trips over something, with the noise alerting the cops to their presence. 
They sit silently and they wait as they hear footsteps above them. Linda wonders aloud what's even happening, and David reassures her and tells her it's okay to be afraid. Linda says, I'm not afraid, I'm petrified. They hug each other and the cops enter the boiler room. They get to the bottom of the stairs and they discover David and Linda sitting there. The police pull guns on the duo, but just then the ground starts to shake and Linda screams as part of the spaceship emerges out of the ground from beneath the school. The cops fall over and shoot wildly, and David and Linda are able to make a getaway up the stairs as a tunnel is formed directly into the school's boiler room. If you watch when the cops are coming down the steps with a flashlight, they kind of pause on this like head-looking thing for a second, which is the Supreme Intelligence model from the 1953 mm, movie. So, right. Another little cute nod to the original. David and Linda are next seen in the car, with David saying that the aliens must be tunneling under the whole town. Linda suggests that they get the hell out of there, and David says, no, they have to find his mom and dad. Suddenly, his bright idea light goes off above his head, and he wonders aloud, General Wilson. They head to the Marine base, and they're stopped by a guard, where David asks to see the general because it's an emergency. Inside one of the base offices, we see General Wilson, played by James Karen, get a phone call, apparently from the guard shack. He listens, and he says, uh, just sounds like another crazy. But once he realizes it's George Gardner's son, he agrees to let them come speak with him. As David and Linda are driven into the base by the MPs, we see shots of Marines patrolling the base. Now, this is a fun fact. All of the Marines here, or all of the soldiers that you see are played by actual U.S. Marines. Nice. Um, Dale Dye, he is a really sought-after military technical advisor in Hollywood. He worked with Oliver North on Born on the Fourth of July. Like, he's kind of the military guy. Um, he did all the military coordination for this one, too. So that's pretty cool. And you'll actually uh, see him later in the movie. Oh, nice. Yeah. Also, I noticed, like, well, when they mentioned General Wilson, first of all, like, that comes out of nowhere. But um, mm-hmm. the the uh, energy I'm getting off of this, which actually this movie didn't occur to, to much later, but I'm getting such, like, um, George C. Scott playing General Buck in Dr. Strangelove energy from this dude, like, very much just like, woo! Like, let's he has, go to war. He has, like, quintessential 80s military commander vibes. Full, 100%. Full, like, full cigar stogie. Oh, yeah. Like, he's got a, a, a portrait of Chesty Puller, who's, like, the most decorated Marine in history, like, behind him on the wall. And he's, like, Mr. Well, if you remember, at the very beginning of the movie... David mentions that that Mad Dog Wilson came to visit them at the school. Right. So, like, you know. Okay, so there is a little drop. In yeah, the but it's like the tiny that I didn't like pickup. <laughs> right, but well, right. I had to watch it like two times like, to well, even. How is this to, to General Wilson, dude? Also, oh. just blowing secondhand smoke right into the kid's face. Oh, come on! That helped us grow up big and strong. <laughs> right. It was kids. good for you, and it had vitamins in it. <laughs> They're filtered. <laughs> it's a filtered right. cigar <laughs> the filters make them safe we do not condone smoking all right anyway so uh david spots the two research workers who had been sucked under the sand who are now helping to unload a bunch of copper wire into a truck we join general wilson in his office with david and linda where the general asks if this has anything to do with david's dad Linda starts to talk to the general, but David stops her, asking if he can see the back of the general's neck first. He obliges, and David is relieved, saying that he just had to make sure. 
Sergeant Major Rinaldi, played by Eric Pierpoint, offers, offers up his own neck for inspection as well. The scene cuts to George and Ellen Gardner pulling up outside the base alongside a truck carrying liquid oxygen, and George gets out carrying a briefcase. He opens it up, saying that it's wired, and he sets a detonator. Two workers take it from him wordlessly, and George says they better hurry or you just might blow it. Ellen drives five feet to allow George back into the car, and they drive off. We cut back to Linda and David in the general's office, with Linda saying how she knows what it must sound like, but she swears it's true. The general is understandably doubtful, but Rinaldi says that NASA did confirm a UFO sighting two nights ago in the general area that David's describing. However, their radar didn't show any strike. David busts out his best Neil deGrasse Tyson lecture, saying how if the spaceship absorbed energy upon landing, it wouldn't have shown up on their radar. Rinaldi continues, saying that two men were sent on the cop sent to check on the Copper Hill area a couple of days ago, but didn't have anything to report. David says, it's because they were sucked under the sand. The general makes a call to Corporal Walker, played by Deborah Berger, asking for David and Linda to be escorted to another room. Once they leave, General Wilson asks Rinaldi to let NASA know that they're going to do a security check on the two men who had gone to look at Copper Hill. Cut to a shot of the two men in orange jumpsuits reading research team, looking nervous and being invited into the general's office. General Wilson asks them about the Copper Hill search, and they immediately pull guns on him. Rinaldi judo chops the guns away from the men, and MPs rush in to detain them. This is like this is like full Adam West Batman fight. Oh, it's so it, good! It's just, we were missing the the, the boing the and the zap, pow. Yeah. Like, this oh is, no, it's so good. And it was so. There's the two guys standing there. They both pull guns at the same time. Rinaldi like chops one away from Mister, you know, guy Mister, you know, first one like closest to him, and the other one just like pulls a kung fu movie and just like stands there kind of <laughs> weaving until it's her, his turn to get the gun punched away from him. I love it. It was so good. The general, while holding his gun on the two men, asks them to tell him what the hell is going on. One of the men begins to talk, but no sooner does one word escape his mouth than both of them collapse and seize on the floor. Rinaldi moves in to inspect the pulse of one of the research workers, says that they're dead, and a sudden electrical spark and impulse causes him to jump back. We see the antenna begin to emerge from the back of the dead man's neck, with the military personnel looking on in horror. General Wilson gives orders to seal the base perimeter, alert security, and get those NASA hotshots back right away, and to bring back the nurse and the kid and to monitor the launch area. This is the first that I recall hearing of any kind of launch in the movie. For sure, yes. Like, I feel like this should have come up sooner, but whatever. We move outside to see that the liquid oxygen truck is being driven to the launch site with the two workers who have the briefcase bomb inside. Back in the general's office, David and Linda are introduced to Dr. Stout. <laughs> He's played by a guy called Donald Houghton, and they give him a name in the movie, but on IMDb, they only credit him as the old NASA scientist, which <laughs> oh, like, I think is really rude. Oh, that is so ageist. <laughs> I know. And Dr. Weinstein, played by Bud Court, who actually is credited as Dr. Weinstein, uh, who both work with David's dad at NASA. We get another demonstration of David's space fascination as he tells the scientists he didn't think that the Viking missions had found any sign of life on Mars, even though there were photos in a magazine showing some kind of pyramid there. He says he thought they were fake, but the scientists say that they are indeed real, and in fact there were even more photos too sensational to be made public. When David says that there wasn't any water there to support life, 
The scientists said that's why they're looking underground. The general reasons that any alien life up there may not want to be found. The scientists inspect the antenna removed from one of the research workers' necks as they discuss with the general the need to postpone the launch until the security of the base can be guaranteed. General Wilson wants to pause the launch until an all-clear can be given, and the scientists agree. Meanwhile, the truck carrying the liquid oxygen outside zooms past a checkpoint with the MPs opening fire on it. Back in the office, Dr. Stout is on the phone with Mission Control, authorizing a temporary freeze of the launch countdown. As scientists go to leave the office, a Marine hurries into the office to inform the general of a security breach that there's a liquid oxygen truck on the runway. Everyone in the office watches the monitors as we see the truck head right for the rocket on the launch pad. With just over 10 minutes to go on the countdown, the rocket explodes. Corporal Walker bursts in, telling General Wilson that two technicians were just arrested on base for stealing equipment, copper wire. Soldiers check the radar to see if anything shows up, but they see nothing. The Martians are already here. So much to unpack here. Let's let's unpack all of this. All of it, yeah. Go ahead. Okay, so the first and the first and foremost, like the elephant in the room here. Mm-hmm. This movie came out in June of 1986. Oh yeah, January 28th, 1986. So. Six months before, the Challenger explodes. Yeah. Easily one of the most traumatizing things to happen to children in the 80s. Because a lot of children watched it in their classrooms because Mm -hmm. teachers played it live. Yeah, I I did. children watched the Challenger explode on live TV. Then later in June, in this movie, they they explode a shuttle. So luckily, I think it was just, I think it was an unmanned flight, but it's like the the optics are not great. The optics are not great. And for a movie that's sort of, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a children's movie, but it's definitely a family friendly horror movie in the sense that like kids will probably watch it with their parents. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like you've traumatized, the child is already traumatized from from the Challenger exploding. And now this child is going to be (laughs) re-traumatized. By watching a shuttle explode. So I'm just saying. I mean, as trauma goes, though. It's a PR nightmare. Your parents being taken over by aliens might be slightly more traumatic than watching an unmanned shuttle explode. I know it was too late to change it. I'm just saying it's 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 It's, poor taste. The timing was shitty. I I disagree. It's not hold up. (laughs) Oh, my God. And so, okay, so. There, you know, the um, Wilson says, Oh gosh, you know, these technicians got arrested for stealing copper wire. Like, we saw them unloading copper wire off the truck. You're like, Where is this going? You do get an answer, but like, it's a very roundabout answer. And I spent very, all my time being like, Well, the, the copper pennies are important. I don't know, which they kind of are, but it's we'll talk about it. General Wilson asks David to take him to the sand pit. Wilson orders Captain Curtis, played by Christopher Allport, to take a platoon to the pit. If I say Cowboy Curtis during this, please forgive me, because I know his name is Captain Curtis, but, like, three times I typed Cowboy Curtis, and I'm like... Fishburne. I know. I know. I was like, oh, shit. Oops. For the children, Lawrence Fishburne played played Cowboy Curtis in Pee Wee's uh, Playhouse. Playhouse. Yeah. We see a huge platoon of Marines head out of the base in jeeps and armored trucks, 
with David and Linda riding alongside General Wilson as they make their way to Copper Hill. Another group of Marines arrives at Menzies Elementary School, and Menzies Elementary is named for the director of the original movie, so another little nod. They want to break in and cover the area at the school. We cut over to a tank driving through the fence at David's house with the general giving orders to secure it. A flurry of military activity takes place with troops at both Copper Hill and the school taking tactical positions. Captain Curtis and the Marines at the school head into the boiler room where they come upon the tunnel formed earlier when the police had confronted David and Linda. At Copper Hill, helicopters fly overhead, giant floodlights are raised, and everyone gets in position. At the school, Captain Curtis prepares to rappel down into the tunnel while Dr. Weinstein looks on. Once at the bottom of the tunnel, Curtis's eyes go wide as he sees what's around him and he commands the rest of the squad to join him. Back at Copper Hill, David begins to make his case to the general about maybe trying to communicate with the aliens, but he's cut off when a Marine informs the general that a tunnel system has been located beneath the school headed west, which is right towards Copper Hill. Another Marine says that the, that the demolition charges have been set and the winches have been placed, and the general runs off to take care of business, leaving David behind looking sad. The Marines take position around the sand pit as a helicopter flies in, and we see Rinaldi, like, slip and eat shit and fall right into the <laughs> sand pit. And it was the worst, like, fake fall. No. It's so, he's like, whoa, 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 and yeah. just falls <laughs> right in. I mean, it's very tragic. Yes, it is extremely tragic. General Wilson yells Rinaldi at the top of his voice and tells him to get out, but it's too late. We see a sandworm-type motion under the sand, and a spiraling hole sucks Rinaldi down. He is gone within seconds. I feel like General Wilson's whole role, or almost his whole role in this like last part of the movie, is to stand by the sandpit and just yell names and to yell things. Because he like yells at Rinaldi, and he yells David, and like so they just hired him to scream. Yes, super dramatic. In the tunnel beneath the school, Dr. Weinstein and the Marines slowly walk along and quickly see a shadow appear on the wall of the tunnel. They see two meatball aliens approach, chittering and grunting. Weinstein yells to hold your fire and runs to inspect the aliens more closely, telling the commanding officer that they shouldn't waste a chance like this. He approaches the aliens, telling them it's okay and that he has something that belongs to them. He takes the antenna out of his pocket and holds it out to a little tiny alien arm with the alien taking hold of it. It's a really cute moment. Yeah. He introduces himself to the aliens as Mark Weinstein from SETI and realize reasons that they do understand him. He turns to the Marines to excitedly tell them that, yes, they understand me. And then the aliens quickly shoot him in the back with a death ray and dissolve him instantly. Yeah. He's just, he's, he's fully exterminated. <laughs> he's like, they get me. They get me. Oh, shit. They don't get yeah, me. Yeah. They don't get you. The Marines quickly open fire on the aliens, taking them both down. Captain Curtis cautiously checks the corpses and makes a call to recon the network of tunnels. Back at Copper Hill, Linda reassures David, who's disappointed that the general didn't listen to his plan. David looks towards the pit and then suddenly takes off running towards the pit out of nowhere, flailing and shouting that he needs to find his right. mom and Still dad. Still flail running. Still flailing. Linda screams and runs after him while the general looks on. But just as expected, Linda and David are both pulled under the sand. General Wilson gives orders to arm the demo charges, and Walker runs in to ask him, what about the woman and child? Wilson says they'll just have to risk it. A group of Marines make their way down into the pit with winches attached to them in order to place the charges. They're also they are also quickly sucked down, but the winches are started up in order to pull the soldiers back out. 
They were successfully removed from the sinkhole, but the charges are pulled down into the hole, detonating almost immediately and sending a large sand cloud into the sky. This opens a permanent entrance to the tunnels beneath, and a large group of Marines repels down into the hole. Can we just pause here? Because this is where... Um, I'm like so bored right now. So bored. As soon as they get to the military oh. base, as soon as they start talking to General This Wilson, is a trudge to the As finish. a scientist shows up, I'm not anti-military. I think I'm anti-military movie. Yeah. Like, I get anything that has like tactics and like mentions of types of weapons and platoons and brigades and troops. I'm like zonks. No, I eyes don't cross. Like, and then I don't know. I don't know. I don't know it anymore. Yeah. So I, don't know I anymore. it was an absolute slog to script. This. I did not play risk as a kid. So I, was I won't play. And I won't play it as an adult either. Not so a thing on my bucket list. I didn't get into this. I mean, not for me. Maybe it would be, maybe somebody who's like very into like, you know, the military coming in and kicking ass and taking names and what, like, it, it's... And again, uh, I'm not, like, anti-military. No. Great. I support my troops. No, man. But I don't want to watch it on TV. I, I don't want to, like... I still liked Independence Day. Welcome to Earth. <laughs> it's too soon. I just don't want to... <laughs> no, no. Inside the tunnel, David looks around to see Rinaldi surrounded by a couple of meatball aliens and positioned with his neck exposed to a piece of alien technology, presumably to have an antenna inserted. David looks up to see Mrs. McCouch watching on ominously through a window above as Rinaldi is antennaed. David suddenly realizes that Linda's missing and looks frantically for her, but the aliens grab David as Rinaldi lifts his head and looks over at Linda, who's passed out on the floor. In another area of the... Go ahead. I just want to say this this point right here is the part I remember as a kid because this mm. was the most scary. Having that creepy proboscis mm-hmm. antenna machine coming down to insert the thing into the back of the dude's neck and he's not moving. That was terrifying as a kid for me. Um, yeah, no, it's it's not great. So for me, it wasn't the frog. For me, it was like the the penetrating neck it's very, it's very, uh, the optics are not good. <laughs> there's a point later in it, and I'll point it out. It's there's, assault. There's a point, there is a point, and I will point it out where it's even worse than what we see with Rinaldi. Yes. In another area of the tunnel network, the Marines and the General walk through with Dr. Stout, who notes that the aliens are smelting copper. So they're smelting the copper that they've been stealing. We then see David being thrown to the floor in front of the Supreme Intelligence, and he asks where Linda is. Mrs. McCouch walks in to tell David that Linda's busy right now and that David has absolutely no idea how lucky he is to meet the Supreme Intelligence. Mrs. McCouch approaches and stands with the two aliens behind David while he begs the Supreme Intelligence not to hurt Linda. He starts to ask for his mom and dad also, but Mrs. McCouch just goes on another rant about how much trouble David is. David continues to reason with the brain thing, and Mrs. McKelch interjects that it's too late. (laughs) David tells her to shut up, that he is talking to Crane, and that he will stay every day after school for the rest of his life as she will just shut up for a second. I am not talking to you! I'm (laughs) talking to him! Yeah, it was... Oh, God. Yeah, I I love that she got told to shut up finally. David tells the Supreme Intelligence it can't just control people that it's wrong and begs it to give his mom and dad back and Linda and Heather. And then he looks at Mrs. McCouch and says, well, the aliens can keep her. (laughs) 
<laughs> the supreme intelligence like scream growls, which cracked me up because like nobody wants nobody wants lady. the teacher. Like, not even the I don't supreme. fucking want her. No. She's awful. Yeah. One of the supreme intelligence's tentacles knocks David to the floor, with Mrs. McKelch saying that it's David's turn to get assimilated. The supreme intelligence says, "Poor little guy." This really pisses David off. This, I'm gonna laugh my ass off. He stands up. He calls. He calls the supreme intelligence a dick brain and punches him in the face. He goes, "You dick brain!" and like fake punches him. <laughs> so good. It was so good. Crane growls, and Mrs. McKelch calls David a bad boy, who responds by knocking her over the head with his trusty bag of pennies. <laughs> For some reason, the two meatball aliens there turn on her, and we see her being eaten by one of them as she screams. The alien belches steam, satisfied after its meal of frog-seasoned teacher witch. R.I.P., little lady. Yeah. David takes the opportunity to run off, and he looks through a window to see Linda positioned face down, about to be antennaed. The meatball aliens laugh as David tries to find his way down to save Linda. So this Are is the point. Are we calling it laugh? Are we calling it laughing? I mean, in this particular one, it's pretty clearly a, a grunt laugh. Right. They're amused. Um, this is the point, though, where, like, we see Linda positioned to be antennaed. It is uncomfortable. Well, because the angle of how she's laying... It doesn't immediately look like it's going to go into her neck. neck. It looks way lower. And I'm like, dude, I didn't know. I didn't know this was a probing alien movie. Like, I thought it was next. Obviously, that doesn't happen. It's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable. So much so that I remember it as a kid to now. And I'm like, that part Yeah, y'all know what you're doing. Yeah, that makes me unhappy. Take Take the pretty lead lady in the movie and make her look like she's about to be probed. It's not great. Back in one of the tunnels, the general, along with some marines, encounter Rinaldi, who's under the effects of this antenna, and tells the marines to go back, but he's pointing a gun at the general. You can tell he's fighting his internal urges. Rinaldi begs the marines to shoot him, as he knows he's about to fire on the general. They oblige, killing him. The general approaches the body, saddened, and motions for the troops to move on ahead. We then cut to David in a tunnel just above two of the meatballs. One of them removes a shiny metal bar from somewhere, like a pocket. <laughs> he just like pulls it out of his body and he inserts it into his weapon, seemingly as ammo. This is where the copper comes in. Captain Curtis and the Marines approach from another tunnel and David yells for him to look out as the alien weapon lights up and fires, hitting a wall. The Marines open fire on the two aliens who scream and fall over dead. David shouts to the general and Captain Curtis that the aliens have Linda and they're about to get her. Wilson tells David to stay calm and tells Curtis to muster the troops. He then heads out to help save Linda. Curtis looks around and says, I wasn't trained for this, which has big I'm too old for this shit energy. (laughs) Wilson and a large group of Marines head into the main room with the Supreme Intelligence, starting a large shootout with the two meatballs. We see bullets flying, Marines being electrocuted, and Krang screaming. The Marines continue to fire more and more bullets into the Supreme Intelligence, who, bleeding, finally retreats up into the ceiling of the ship as the needle moves closer and closer to Linda's neck. Dude, when when the Supreme Intelligence brain alien pulls up into the ceiling, it's like this... 
It's like this hole surrounded by teeth. Yes. But the angle. Okay, first of all, this is the first time that like I noticed that the being wasn't just a brain. It's like, like attached a, to like a big snake yeah, thing. Tail. Yeah. So the head of the alien and the long cylindrical body mm-hmm. of the alien mm-hmm. disappearing backwards into a hole looks extremely phallic. I don't get what you're getting at. I don't understand. <laughs> I think you're going to need to go into a little bit more detail. <laughs> Please describe further how this looks like a giant dick. I can't stress enough that I don't get it. There's a subtle sucking motion. <laughs> I think someone goes, oh, yeah, like it's terrible. <laughs> oh, God. Okay. The, the two remaining meatball aliens fall dead. And the general gives orders to fire the dragon. And I didn't know what the dragon was, so I looked it up. It is a shoulder-fired, man-portable, anti-tank guided missile weapon. So, like, this, it's basically like a cannon on your shoulder. Yeah. So, this, the guy who fires the dragon is Dale Dye. This is the guy who's the military coordinator. Yeah. So, he screams, firing the back flank area, and he blows up the area behind where Krang had been positioned. Marines scramble to place demolition charges near the Supreme Intelligence's pedestal while the General and David look on, look in on Linda. She wakes up to Marines helping her up, not knowing where she is. Suddenly there's a rumble, which they realize means that the ship is leaving. They all have to get out of there as fast as possible. Wilson tells the demolition crew to set the charges to go off in five minutes and everybody has to be out by then. Marines move out as fast as they can. The Supreme Intelligence suddenly reappears from the ceiling, angry. David and Linda run down the hall, only to confront one of the spaceship's bladed tunneling mechanisms. They duck out of the way, and everyone continues to look for the exit, but they soon realize that the entrance has been sealed off by the aliens, and they can't dig or even shoot their way out. David calls Captain Curtis over to see one of the alien weapons on the floor, and Curtis is super into the idea in an it's-crazy-but-it-just-might-work kind of way. The general says it'd be great, but they don't know how to fire it. And David says they just need copper because he'd seen the alien load the weapon. Curtis suggests that a penny might work. And David suddenly realizes that the mint condition penny his dad gave him in the beginning of the movie happens to be in the pocket of his jacket. Penny ex machina. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. He puts the penny into the alien weapon and it comes to life almost immediately, blowing a hole through the ground. Everyone leaves the tunnel hastily, except for David, who stays behind just long enough to be approached by George and Ellen. George motions for David to join them and tells him he has to hurry or the ship's going to leave without them. David says he loves them, but he can't come with them. The gardeners get angry and start to chase David up through the tunnel. With 30 seconds left until detonation, David flails and flaps his way up the side of the sand pit with George and Ellen in close pursuit. This kid's trying to fly away, I think. I'm not sure. <laughs> Linda continues to scream for David. We see the alien ship light up into the sky with three seconds left as the gardeners finally tackle their son. They struggle with him, and as the countdown reaches zero, the back of George and Ellen's necks explode into sparks, and we see the ship blow up in a massive fireball. The gardeners no longer seem to be under alien control, and they frantically and desperately reach towards David to pull him out of the way of the explosion. Suddenly, David wakes up in bed screaming with lightning flashing outside. It was all a dream. It was all a dream. It was just a dream. 
George and Ellen make their way quickly into David's room, trying to reassure him, while David screams at them to leave him alone. David collapses into his mom's arms and asks to see the back of his dad's neck. Ellen's like, well, what about my neck? And David's like, nah, you're cool. I don't get that. (laughs) (laughs) The scene crossfades into the next, in which David has apparently told his parents everything. The spaceship, the aliens, the military. They're all sitting comfortably in David's bed, and his parents seem very intrigued by David's dream. Ellen tells David he has nothing to worry about because his penny collection is still right there by his bed. George says that David's dream makes sense because it was composed of all the things that happened to David that day, like the penny collection and the general's visit to the school. David says he was so scared, and in her best Saturday Night Live Conehead's voice, Ellen reassures David that there's nothing to worry about and that they'll take a picnic up at the hill tomorrow. George leaves, and Ellen tucks David into bed. She asks if she should leave the door open for open a bit for David, but he says it's okay. David turns over to snuggle his pennies again, but just as he shuts his eyes, insanely bright lights shine in through his window with a telltale sound of the alien ship in the background. David opens the window to look out, horrified to see the same flashing lights he had seen in his dream. The ship was landing again. He runs screaming to his mom and dad's room. As he opens the door, he screams, No! The scene pauses on David's terrified face, and as it fades to black, we hear the familiar sound of a grunting, groaning meatball. Roll credits. The end. So, Amy, what did you think of Invaders from Mars? Oh, my God. (laughs) First of all, like, we watched it in two parts. Like, we couldn't get through it in one sitting. We had to take a break. That's true. That's true. I think we kind of got just about to the military part and went, eh, we'll finish this later. We'll finish it later. After What's-His-Face got vaporized was right around the time that it was like, we could maybe take a break. Um... Oh, what did I think of the movie? That's so loaded. I love, love, love this the the practical effects. There's a lot to say. It's uh, about this movie, both interesting, really good and fun, and then just like really bad. But like, um, obviously, I love, love, loved the practical effects. Stan mm-hmm. Winston is a genius. We know this. Oh, absolutely. Um. All of the elements on paper made me want to love this movie. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to believe. (laughs) I really wanted to love this movie. From the cast. So you moldered this movie. I moldered this movie. (laughs) I want to believe. I want to believe. I, from the cast to the director to the screenwriter to the, you know, it, everything the cast like that's what i said yeah Yeah, like you had freaking so many elements to make this movie fantastic and it just what it wasn't alan it was not good i know i know good movie i did not like this movie no i feel the same way like uh, like i said you know part of the reason i picked this one just was because you know you and i are kind of going we're on a nostalgia kick for this podcast for the most part and so i was like let me pick something that i remember scaring me as a kid and this is the first one i remember for sure and while i appreciated the more horrific parts in the beginning Mm -hmm. because the the first part of the movie is definitely more horror even though it is an alien spaceship and whatever and so you know the sci-fi elements are there it's still very frightening you know um 
But man, like I said, I got to that military point and it's like my brain went and right. It just shut down. I'm like, could we just be like bang, bang, shoot, shoot, like Marines save the day. Everything's fine. The end. It, yeah, it was boring. It bored me. Yeah. This is, and we've talked about this before. We like horror sci-fi, but we're not so big on the military sci-fi. Not again, not that there's anything wrong with that. And if you love military sci-fi, you'll love the second half of this movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, And I mean, I do have to give some major respect, though, to the fact that you know, they got real Marines yeah. that Dale Dye, like, worked with them to, you know, play. Like, I mean, it was great. Like, that part was great. There are things I absolutely res- I respect a lot about the movie. Right. But my respect for a movie does not equal my enjoyment of a movie. Right. And so I let's let's talk ratings. Um, So for for ratings here on Last Isle. We are going to be rating these on a 1 to 10 day rental scale. So, Amy, on a scale of 1 to 10 days rental, how many days would you rent this movie for? One day. I'm returning it the next day. Oh, no. Really? (laughs) It is that bad to Okay, I'll give it a three. Okay, like, I mean, be real. Yeah. I'll give it a three day rental just for Stan Winston. That's fair. Because... He, you know, he is, after all, a legend. Credit where credit is due. That was phenomenal. But the three is also because they did not give these monsters enough enough time on no, camera. Absolutely. There was so much amazing work done into these creatures, and they just weren't on camera enough, which I, I'm sure is probably logistical. Well, in budget. You know, he right. even said, like, I think they said that they really kind of only created two workable mm-hmm. um, costumes that could be fitted. The rest were just models that were kind of off in the background. Yeah. So, but the two models that the, you know, little person and bodybuilder could get into, they only made two of those. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the two moving aliens that you see at every point in the movie, it's the same two. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I understand just, if something rips or if some, you know, it's hard yeah. to get patched. I get that. I get that. I, you know, I still, but the child in me that's like, no, nah, I want to see the monsters. I came for the monsters. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, that's all. It was it was frustrating to have that only be just a blip. Yeah, and uh, to spend so much time on flailing and running and flailing. <laughs> And flailing and falling and flailing and running and falling and screaming. There was a lot of yelling in this movie, too, boy, howdy. Ooh, so much just, Rinaldi! Like, it's great. So what is your rating? What does this bring you to? This was, I I struggled with this because, you know, I think so many times we kind of look, we look at movies through the lens of our own nostalgia. So if we went back and watched a dumb comedy that we'd seen a million times as kids, you know, what, whatever that might be. I feel like you'd rate it higher a little bit just because it, it satisfies an area in you that is nostalgic and reminiscent of your childhood and things like that. So I tried to look at this movie completely objectively as if I were watching it for the first time. Mm For me, on a scale of one to ten days rental, I think I'm renting this movie for four days. Mm-hmm. Um, I do give credit because Toby Hooper was in love with the original movie. He, um, although I myself have not seen it, 
I've read that it is a very good homage to the original, retaining a lot of its elements while kind of making it a little fresh and new. Mm -hmm. Um, also, I just love Toby Hooper, you know, in general. Mm -hmm. Um, the, the level of talent, you know, you have the screenwriter or this, you know, the screenplay adapter who worked on the screenplay for Alien. You have Stan Winston, like we've talked about. You have an Academy Award winning cast in some areas. So, there are great levels of talent that come to this movie. So again, while I respect it as a movie, that doesn't mean I necessarily loved it. Mm -hmm. Um, I probably won't choose to watch it again. <laughs> I, after writing the script for this, I'm just like, dude, no, I have done this to death. I will never, if it's on TV, I may be like, <laughs> shade of frog, and then walk away. Like, I'll watch it for two <laughs> seconds. But I'm not going to pick this as like, oh, no, man, I'm in the mood. Watch something. Let's just throw on Invaders from Mars. Um, it is also, you know, this is a horror podcast. Really, this is more of a sci-fi movie with for horror sure. elements. So I do feel a little bad that this ended up being the first one we picked, but what are you going to do? And let's be very clear here as a little disclaimer. I love a good campy movie. I oh, love so much. I love irreverence and camp. And I do too. I love all of that very much. I love satire and all that. I feel like if this movie would have leaned a slight bit harder into the campiness. I feel, would have been more appreciated. But I feel it, like that wasn't that wasn't clear. No. Some sometimes they play. I mean, there's this very like almost emotional moment where the uh where the military guy, you can correct me, because I don't remember names, people. No, it's I just fine. don't. It's fine. I have problems. But the where the the guy is begging to be shot. Oh yeah, Rinaldi. Yeah, so Rinaldi is begging to be shot and then is shot. But like it's an uh, it's a it's a rock and hard place moment. Like yeah. you can really see the emotions on his face. He's trying to fight it, and that all felt very visceral and real. And I kind of was like, oh, maybe this isn't a bad movie. But then in the next scene, the kid is flailing and running again, and it is a bad movie again. So. It's like if you are selling the camp, not taking yourself too seriously. If you're selling that, sell it. Go full mm -hmm. Rocky Horror and like, yeah, like sell really that into it. sell that invader, that space invaders magic. But if you're going to try to go a little more serious, go more serious with it. So I don't maybe it was too highbrow for me and I just didn't get it. But well, it I, also could be, you know, I mean, it was made in 86. Like yeah. there's there's a level of like lovable cheesiness that comes out of the eighties, like that I think is just a product of the era of filmmaking. For sure. Like it's just you're like, man, that is such like a quintessential eighties movie. And so I think you kind of I get that feeling a little bit. But yeah, if they wanted to go camp, they should have leaned harder into it. Yeah. If they wanted to be more serious, it could have been a little more serious. Yeah. I mean, if you look at 1950s sci-fi, which is where the script originated, yeah. like that, that is like the epitome. Yeah, of I mean, camp. watch Plan Nine from Outer Space sometime. Well, that's, tell me yeah, that's that boy. I mean, that's a whole other. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. Um. So yeah. Um. Overall, didn't can't say I love the movie. Didn't hate the movie. Didn't hate it, but. I watched 
a movie. <laughs> we sure watched that we movie. We sure watched the hell out of that movie. That's about as much as I can say. I don't know how to end this thing. <laughs> so, yep, that's it. And that's kind of how it feels. I think that's kind of how it felt as we ended the movie. It's almost like at some point you get to the end and you're like, did they just not know how to wrap this up? Or were they sticking very closely to the way the, the original script ended? Um, if so, it didn't translate. It did not translate from uh, 50s to 1986, where you're like, okay, it was just a dream. Maybe at one point that was, oh, what a twist. Maybe that was a twist. Um, yeah, but by, but the, was, by the 1980s, it was That so was played very out. played out. And I, yeah, yeah so sorry. Um, three, three day, five day, three day rental, whatever I said, three day rental for me. <laughs> what did I say? <laughs> Well, that wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on The Last Isle. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on our social media channels, at Last Isle on Facebook and Twitter, and at Last Isle Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So sit back, cuddle up with your bag of pennies, and grab a burnt plate of bacon, and come peruse the selection of movies in the last aisle. See you soon.